Welcome to IOL Radio. I'm Amy Peltier, Managing Editor of IO Learning, a digital publication geared toward interventional oncologists and the news source for the Symposium on Clinical Interventional Oncology. Today, we're pleased to welcome Isabel Newton, Chief of Interventional Radiology at the VA San Diego Healthcare System and Associate Professor of Radiology at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Newton is also the co-founder of the Interventional Initiative, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to engaging the public with credible and comprehensible information about minimally invasive image-guided procedures. She's here to tell us more about the Interventional Initiative today. Welcome, Dr. Newton. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about the Interventional Initiative? So the Interventional Initiative was founded in um, 2015 by Susan Jackson uh, and me, Um, but it was really, Susan Jackson was the driver. Um, She has a background in, um, she was an IR technologist, but then went on to get her MBA and um, is in marketing and understands really the value of reaching out to people. And so at the time um, we were kind of working separately, but along parallel lines. She's also the uh, executive director of the Western Angiographic and Interventional Society or Western Angio. And um, I was asked by that society to document their history, the history of IR recognize that the more interesting story was not simply the history of IR, but telling it to the public in a way that they could understand what um, is available to them in terms of minimally invasive image guided procedures. So at that time, um, I you know, proposed interviewing luminaries and people um, to try to get, you know, gather the history. And uh, Susan had the idea, well, why don't we just make a documentary? Because she was making a documentary with her um, kind of day job position uh, and thought, you know, this would be a really cool thing for interventional radiology. So before the II, there was the the documentary uh, Without a Scalpel, uh, which then later on became a docuseries. Um, But we first made that. And the idea was really to educate the public about um, minimally invasive image guided procedures uh, through entertainment, which we knew would be a way to access um, swaths of people who might not understand what we do otherwise. And so with our first episode, uh, which uh, we didn't know was going to be a first episode, we thought it was going to be a one-off, Susan had the brilliant idea of realizing if this thing is gonna have legs, it needs to have some kind of foundation behind it. And so the interventional initiative came out of that as a way of supporting the creation of this, what became a docu-series and supporting our mission, which emerged very clearly as um, being a mission to reach out to the public and to patients to educate and engage them about the power of minimally invasive image-guided procedures. So that's why it was founded. How many episodes of Without a Scalpel have been produced and where can they be viewed? So there are four completed episodes of Without a Scalpel, and they're on many different on-demand platforms. Um, You can go to uh, theii.org, to the docuseries link on our website to find different places. But we just recently put it on YouTube to make it accessible to all. Uh, For a while, it was on various on-demand platforms. Um, It's still on Amazon Prime and others um, and Vimeo. 
But what we would like is for as many people to see it as possible. What kinds of disease can be treated with minimally invasive image-guided procedures? When you're an interventional radiologist, you really deal with many organ systems, many types of patients um, across the lifespan, and we're everywhere. So it's very difficult to have a concise messaging about what can be treated. So when we try to give you know, an example of a smattering of things, it can be as small as a biopsy or um, putting in a special IV for a patient to get medications, or it can be as complicated and as significant as uh, treating uh, cancer inside, deep inside the body and um, helping someone avoid uh, you know, a, other more um, invasive procedures or systemic procedures that would cause collateral damage. Uh, kind of examples of in between are we're able to treat infertility. We can treat uh, benign growths in the uterus called fibroids. Uh, we can treat infection. We can open up clogged um, blood vessels and we can close ones that are bleeding. So in the middle of the night, we get called to save people who are um, have been in a car accident or had some other kind of trauma. And another really cool thing that we can do is when people have high blood pressure in their liver, we can, through a tiny little pinhole in their neck, create a new um, bypass to allow some of that blood to go past the liver so the liver's not so congested with blood. And that could help relieve some of those symptoms. That's called a TIPS, and it's an extraordinary procedure that is all done through tiny little pinholes. What is National Without a Scalpel Day? National Without a Scalpel Day was another ingenious um, idea of Susan Jackson. Um, and so what it does is it commemorates the very first minimally invasive image-guided procedure that was performed by Dr. Charles' daughter on a very brave and uh, sort of tenuous woman, Laura Shaw. The day was January 16, 1964. And Laura Shaw was sent to uh, Charles' daughter with the um, instructions of just to assess her. Uh, but she had um, a, a stenosis, a narrowing in the blood vessel, and she refused to have an amputation. And so she said to Dr. Daughter, do what you can. And he knew, you know, he had had this thought six months earlier that, you know, while we're in there, why can't we also, you know, actually do something to help this disease process? He was seeing the narrowing inside of the blood vessels, and he had developed these dilators that he could put over a wire. And wires end up being the way that we sort of navigate through the body. And if he could slide these dilators over the wire, he can open up these closed blood vessels and let the leg get the blood that it needs to, to survive. Well, he did this in Laura Shaw on that day. And three days later, she walked out of the hospital on her own two legs. And she um, you know, ended up passing away years later from an unrelated disease. So we celebrate um, that procedure for the audacity, not only of the um, physician, but also the, the patient. And that from that, our entire field has been born. And not simply interventional radiology, but if you um, can, you know, notice all of medicine is becoming much more minimally invasive. We recognize the value of keeping patients whole, of getting them back to living their lives. And if you do this through um, smaller and smaller incisions, or as we do through pinholes, then patients can go back to being who they are and not having the intrusive aspects of trying to get over their, their disease process or, um, you know, surmounting whatever's happening to them, um, being, you know, uh, inhibiting them from having the life that they need and they deserve.
What is the Patient Decision Aid Initiative? The Patient Decision Aid Initiative is probably our most exciting one, even though, you know, making a docu-series sounds much more flashy and is also quite exciting. Um, that initiative um, got, got us a lot of attention, but this one stands to have the greatest impact. And what this is, is an initiative that um, is born out of a collaboration with um, Eric Keller, who is a brilliant um, interventional radiology resident at Stanford. And he came to me interested in um, ideas around, uh, around the ethics of interventional radiology. And that is um, something that is very new to our, our field, our field having been born, you know, in 1964 is a very new field. And so, you know, you can either consciously try to shape your field to be more ethical, more inclusive, um, more accessible, um, more equitable, um, or you can just let things happen organically. And Eric stood up and said, you know, I don't think it should happen organically. I think we should um, consciously decide, you know, how we're doing things and um, critically analyze, you know, how we're, for example, consenting patients and informing them and giving them the power to make the best decisions for themselves. Well, when it came to me, that aligned perfectly with what we were doing in the interventional initiative, because we um, know that patients don't understand what we do. We know that patients who understand their options and understand what they can, are you know, being offered do better when they're able to make an informed choice. And so um, Eric came to us and said, you know, I'm really trying to make these little consent hand, um, handouts. And um, we recognized that we could um, marry many of the things that we had already written and already done um, with what he was doing. And he was um, mining the data for reliable um, numbers about um, benefits and risks and um, and we together put it in a language that is uh, accessible to the public, which means it needs to be at about the sixth to eighth um, grade health literacy level. And then that together has, um, you know, uh, created over 50 different patient decision aids that are presented both in printed format that are illustrated with beautiful illustrations that make it easy and accessible for people to understand and also digital formats. And these are both in English and Spanish. And the truly unique thing about this process is that um, not only are they written by people who are experienced in writing in plain language and who are experienced with the procedures, but then we, um, we show the, uh, what we have written to a group of interventional radiologists um, to make sure that we're all in consensus about what we're saying. And then they go to focus groups in both English and Spanish. And these focus groups represent a wide range of patients or potential patients. And we make sure that what we write is um, something that resonates, something that's interesting, something that is, um, that is informative. And based on those, um, the input that we get from our focus groups, we make changes to improve them. The other thing that we've done that really sets us apart is we have tested our patient decision aids in uh, clinical trials, both at Stanford and at UCSD. And what we have found is that um, patients who receive these and they get them in the, um, the waiting room and the doctors don't even know if they've gotten them or not, those patients feel like they have spent more time with their physician. They feel um, like it has been more fruitful time and they are far more likely to respond correctly about the procedure that they're going to have on the order of um, 
uh, where whereas you know 30 some percent would not know what they were doing you know they would say i don't know um, that number drops to about eight percent when they're provided with this information so we know the, that the information works we know that it is improving the quality of the encounter and that's without changing any other aspect of the encounter uh, what we are going to try to do next is when we fully implement these patient decision aids we're going to um, provide guidance to interventional radiologists and the team for how to do this in a way that um, is more effective. And so we're, we're hoping to influence the entire consent conversation and process to make it uh, more transparent, more open, more equitable, more reproducible, uh, so that patients have a better stake in their own healthcare. Do you plan to make these aids available at the referring physician level as well? So what you just brought up is something that has been suggested to us. So the way we originally conceived of them was they would, you know, get them either um, in anticipation of a clinic visit or at their clinic visit with an interventional radiologist. But um, in our focus groups, um, which have also included, um, we've had uh, beta testing in different um, types of IR practices. Some of those um, interventional radiologists have come back to us and said, you know what, I really love for my referring physicians to have this information, not only um, you know, for them to understand more what we do, but also they could share it with the patients um, you know, as part of a, a decision tree, whether or not they'd like to explore this option. So we're really at the point now where we're um, finishing the, the last of the patient decision aids and are about to launch um, the first two waves of them. And I think this is going to be the first iteration we'll realize, as we have with everything that we've done, that there are applications beyond what we even um, anticipated. So, and, and that's what we're hoping for, you know, our goal being to educate and to engage. What are the future plans for the interventional initiative? So uh, we continue to develop out the patient decision aims. Um, and as I mentioned, we hope to create um, a curriculum where we will help uh, physicians understand how to use and implement these aids as part of a broader, more sensitive consent process. Not one that's so perfunctory, uh, not one that is about, okay, yada, 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 I'm gonna say my speech while you lay there on a gurney and now we're both gonna sign and say we had this conversation. Um, you know, How do you do a consent um, conversation that respects uh, a patient's desires, you know, respects their goals. Um, and this means that we need to be sensitive about um, goals of care, about end of life, about questions about futility. And this all goes back to the work that, um, that Eric Keller has done uh, with his Applied Ethics Committee. And that dovetails beautifully into what we have done. So I think there's going to be much more commingling um, between those initiatives in the future. We also have a fifth episode of Without a Scalpel that is half filmed and then kind of had to be um, tabled during the pandemic. Um, and right before the pandemic, I went and scouted um, at Miami Vascular, which is um, one of the most innovative um, practices um, led by Barry Katzen, um, who is one of my personal IR heroes. He made a center that was focused on the heart and the blood vessels. And he had all the doctors there who treat those things together under one roof, working together, making patients well. And so I would very much like to film there and to highlight um, the, the wins that they have had um, on behalf of patients. What are the current volunteer opportunities at the Interventional Initiative? 
That's a great question. So we have um, about 80 members of the interventional initiative, most of whom we call on far too infrequently. You know, we are very much like a startup. And uh, so we, you know, have had that phase where we're putting our heads down, getting things going, um, but we've been engaging more of our members. Um, so probably the most engagement has been with the um, written content committee. They have um, been very active in creating um, our procedure descriptions that are on our website. And I have um, asked uh, many of them to kind of spot check some of these uh, patient decision aids as we're going along. Um, but we could probably engage them more, um, especially as we ramp up and we create more of these um, patient decision aids. At this point, you know, it's been something that a core of us, so it's uh, me, uh, Eric Keller, Margaret Seymour, and um, Susan Jackson um, have worked on together. At this point, Susan Jackson actually has um, moved on outside of the organization, um, but remains very dear to us as none of this would have been possible without her. Um, we have other people that we hire, um, but we could very much use some more help with coordination, with social media support. Lay people are very valuable to us as um, test readers for our materials. And so we have our focus groups and we're always looking for more people like that or people who are, are supporters of the type of work that we do um, and want to contribute. You know, all of us work on a 100% volunteer basis, which means that 100% um, of donations go to support our mission. Uh, we don't have any salaried people at this point. Um, as we grow, we're going to need to have um, more people that are um, fully dedicated to uh, to the uh, initiatives that we're doing into the organization. Um, but at this point, we have been really just um, through passion and determination, we've all dedicated a lot of our time to making this happen. So yes, we can use help. How is the interventional initiative funded? We um, have thrived on donations and on grants, and um, a large portion of our donations have come from just individuals. We've also had um, donations from corporations that are no strings attached because we're unbiased. Um, we've had uh, grants from UCSD, from Stanford, but perhaps the largest grant that we've received is from the Anobar Trust. And that um, has allowed us to really fund the patient decision um, AIDS initiative. And Anna Barr was a very special person to Susan Jackson. She was like a mother to her and she gave her the gift of giving. Um, and so, uh, you know, honored what, what Susan has put so much time into um, with this gift, which has been really special. Um, but in order to continue our efforts, we do need to continue to collect um, you know, donat donations. And so one thing that um, people can do is they can go to our website, there's a donate button. So, you know, theii.org, T-H-E-I-I.org. Um, donations can either be mailed to us via check or they can be made online uh, in that way. And they're 100% tax deductible. You know, we are a 501c3 organization. And so um, it's something where, you know, if you are looking for um, an organization to donate to that's going to have real tangible um, evidence proven benefits for patients and where, you know, the most bang for your buck goes to um, these initiatives, the II is a really good one. Um, other things that people have done is they have given us um, donations of stock. One of my dear mentors gave us some Apple stock, and that has um, continued to produce quite nicely for the II. And we've had people put us in their wills also. Um, so that, you know, we're very fortunate that people recognize what we're doing and they believe in us. 
Um, but, you know, as any type of uh, nonprofit, we do, you know, we rely on, um, on this continued support over time. Any final thoughts? I, I think that um, interventional radiology is, as I mentioned, at a crossroads, and we need to seize this opportunity to consciously move forward in a way that is going to support um, the best care for patients. And because we are at a time where, you know, we have limited resources, we have all kinds of technology out there, but we can't give everything to everyone. Um, we have to be very conscious about how we allocate these resources. And minimally invasive image guided procedures often offer the best healthcare level at lower cost overall, meaning we can go in and um, affect an improvement to a patient or uh, some kind of solution without um, taking them out of the workforce for a long time or without adding added morbidity or side effects. Um, and that's a that's a sweeping statement, but um, anytime you you know leave send somebody home with a bandaid rather than with a big incision, um, you can um, you can expect that the recovery will be faster. So this is not to say that you know there are no indications for more traditional types of treatment, but this is to say that I think we're missing opportunities to treat people in this way because traditionally, minimally invasive image guided procedures have been the option of last resort when they should be right on the table at the beginning with everything else. And so what my hope is, and the hope of all of those who are working with me at the Interventional Initiative, is that these procedures, when there is an option for them, will be presented to patients so they can make the best decision. Sometimes the best decision is a hysterectomy, but sometimes the best decision is a uterine fibroid embolization, which causes the fibroids to shrink. And many other, um, procedures just like that. So I'm hoping that um, the value of these procedures will be recognized and will be shared um, across um, all patients, whether you know they are at the prime of their life or at the end of their life and, and can see the options and the opportunities for them. That wraps up this episode of IOL Radio. Thank you again to Dr. Isabel Newton for coming on the show to tell us about the Interventional Initiative. To learn more about the initiative, be sure to visit their website at www.thei.org. Thanks for listening.